Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of the Challenge of Behaviour Change podcast. My name's Dr. Emma Davis, and in this podcast series, I'm exploring issues that relate to the psychological interventions module at Oxford Brookes University around developing and evaluating behaviour change interventions. In the first episode, we heard from Dr. Sarah Henley about some of the challenges that she faced when trying to recruit participants into an intervention to improve health behaviours in pregnant women. And picking up on this issue again in this episode, I'm talking to Sarah Howcutt, who's going to tell us about her experiences of looking at the challenges of recruitment and trying to increase diversity in particular samples. And she's going to talk to us about three different research projects that she's been involved in, one around alcohol, one around um, bowel cancer screening, but also one around research into why people don't take part in research, which of course in itself sounds incredibly challenging. So I hope you enjoy listening to Sarah's interview and I look forward to hearing any feedback you've got about this podcast series so far. My name's Sarah Howcutt and I'm based at Marston Road because I'm Senior Lecturer in Public Health here at Oxford Brookes and alongside my teaching I also do um, some research in the background. In particular I'm interested in how we can reduce health inequalities. I teach and also in what I research and in the work I do I'm interested in those inequalities which happen because interventions aren't taken up, they aren't adopted, or they're not wanted, they don't work, or they're just not communicated or understood in the right way, so that some people in our communities who need those interventions get missed out. At the moment, I'm looking at what encourages young women who might have less power in society because of their socioeconomic status, their access to resources, their income, their level of education, things like that. And I want to know how we can encourage them to take part in health surveys. And also, I am looking at how we can encourage South Asian communities in the UK to use home testing bowel cancer screening tests. So in short, I'm interested in how we get people to do things that we think will help their health, but which might actually not be something that they want to do because it's uncomfortable or just seriously boring. (laughs) Okay, thank you. So I've been talking to um, a number of people for this podcast series about their interventions and and something that people have been talking about is that they often find it hard to recruit people into their studies and in particular to recruit people who may sort of benefit the most from receiving an intervention. Can you tell us what made you kind of interested in researching this idea of why why young women might not take part in, in health studies. And, um, and obviously that in itself sounds quite challenging if they don't want to take part in surveys. So oh, yes. yeah, that's me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, only I would try and do research with people about why they don't want to take part in research. So it was a full errand to start off with, but I became interested in why people don't take part in research and surveys in particular because I had first-hand experience of struggling to recruit people to a study. Um, I was working alongside uh, David Foxcroft as a research assistant on a project, and we needed 18 to 35-year-old men and women for a questionnaire and a follow-up interview. We were validating a scale to pick up unhealthy levels of drinking. 
but we really tried and for whatever we did to recruit people from all walks of life to represent the general population we ended up recruiting more people yes which was great but the people we did get had more education they had money they were living in more affluent areas so instead of improving our sample all that we did was ended up with a sample which was even heavier on people with higher socioeconomic status and that meant that we were really missing many of the people who might benefit from the scale we were working on and so we actually biased our sample even more because we tried so hard to recruit and then when I started to read about recruitment see if I could solve the problem I realized there was loads of research out there on how to recruit people to studies but at the same time the strategies were working in one study and everyone was celebrating but then the same strategy didn't seem to work in another study. So the problem just didn't seem to be getting fixed. Mm, that sounds tricky. Yeah. And as you've been saying, I, I'm very focused on young women. And um, that comes from when I started to look at recruitment and the problem of who was taking part in studies and who wasn't, I realised that it was young women who were, who were really quite difficult to get in many cases. And I, I think young women are an important focus for us in health research because they're seriously, seriously important for the health of whole communities. Now, I know there's going to be chaps listening to this who are going to be really miffed about that. Yes, gentlemen, you are also important for health in communities, but in very different ways. And um, at the moment, there's an awful lot of attention on preconception health. And that's because young women just moving into adulthood, they're at the stage of ignoring their parents. Believe me, I've got young women at home, my children, and they are starting to make their own choices about their health, what they do with their time, what they do with their money. So if we can understand what they need at that time when they're getting that extra independence, um, we can help these young women to get into habits which support good health for them, which is really important. But we can do even more because the interventions might also improve things for any babies they conceive by creating the best environment for a developing fetus. And even better, we know that women have a lot of influence over their partners and their children's health because they have a lot of say in their family's lifestyles. I know things are changing in the home, but that is still the case. So if we can support young women to have healthy lifestyles, then we can make a big impact. But when I started to look at the recruitment of young women into national health surveys and, and big cohort studies, you know, the kind of studies where you follow lots of people up for a long time to see what diseases and risk factors they develop. I found that the samples were full of women who were middle-aged like me, a bit older, and also had higher levels of education and income. So that meant that researchers were working with data that wasn't telling them about these important young women to the same extent. 
And so we were not hearing from young women who may face even more challenges about their health because of their lower socioeconomic status as well as their age. Sarah, that's really interesting, particularly what you said about um, national health surveys and cohort studies, because we often kind of yeah. rely on those to make big statements about the state of health in different groups. So absolutely, that's interesting in itself. But can you tell us a little bit about what you've um, what you've learned then from your research into this really important area? What what do you think are the main reasons why we might um, fail to recruit people into our incredibly carefully planned interventions? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? So as I've looked into this, I found that lots of researchers have been trying to increase recruitment by trying out strategies and experiments or just trying out stuff uh, to see if it would work by accident. But they haven't actually talked to people about how they feel about doing research and how they've responded when they've been asked to take part in a health study. So that's what I did. And I found out that there are lots of parallels between shopping and research recruitment. Um, we can learn an awful lot from marketeers. Marketeers are really good at getting us to buy stuff that we don't need. And research is important to us. And it may be important for our participants in the future, but frankly, Participants are busy people and they've got a lot of things competing for their attention. So if we apply shopping to recruitment, it can help us to think things through from a participant's viewpoint. So just as a marketeer will try and stop us scrolling past their advert when we're online or walking past their product in the shop, researchers need to catch participants interest in some way so that they look at the information about the study. Marketers know that the way to do that is to work out what somebody wants before they're likely to see an advert so that the advert jumps out because it offers them something that they were looking for in the back of their mind. It kind of fits what they want. And in the past, we've put loads of information into our participant information sheets. You know, those sheets that you put at a start of study to make sure you're offering that informed consent. And we do things like we offer cash rewards and things to persuade people to take part. But if no one's even noticing that information, then how can it persuade anyone? So that's the first thing I took from shopping. Then, once you've got people looking at your information, marketeers also do an awful lot of work to find out where people are going to be looking at the adverts and what they're doing at the same time. So researchers need to do the same. So they can present information about a study in a form that people will be able to take in and which won't arrive at a particularly difficult or busy time so they don't have any attention to spare for a study. You know what it's like when one more thing arrives in your email inbox to do when you've got an assignment due in or a deadline. Well, we need to work out how we can avoid those busy times. And then we need to think again that once we've got someone looking at our information, just like a marketeer grabs someone's interest and gets them looking at their products, 
you then need to keep them interested in some way so that your purchaser, in our case, our participant, puts the product, taking part in research, into their basket and goes through the hassle of remembering what their credit card detail is and going through the checkout. In the same way, researchers mustn't just get people interested in a study and then once they start, make taking part in the research seriously dull or horrible so people give up and do something else. We can lose participants at lots and lots of different stages of a research study. So we've got to keep participation interesting. We've got to give reasons for people to keep going when the going gets tough. So, for example, in my research, I found that participants would put up with a lot if they felt that the researcher had also put up with a lot of hassle to set up the study. A lot of my participants were really impressed at how many copies of a questionnaire I'd printed out and how often I turned up to class to meet them and ask them to help me with my research. And yeah, relationships with brands sell products and marketers use that. Good relationships with our researchers and with participants are also going to increase recruitment. So that's another message we can take away from that shopping analogy. And lastly, just think when you buy a product in a shop that you really like, you flaunt it, you show it off. And then next time you'd be more likely to look at an advert from the same brand. And also you tell your friends about what you've got and you show it to them. So as researchers, we can learn from this and we can give our participants a really good experience. And then they're going to be more likely to help us again to persuade others to participate as well. So basically, I've just learned that use what the marketers have to say about persuading a buyer to move from browsing to purchase, and that should help with recruitment. So that's a really interesting analogy, and it's not something that I've thought about before. But when you were talking about participant information sheets, I, I really related to that. You know, the amount of information that we put in for good reason, um, yeah. you know, but... Um, we need to maybe think of better ways of, of communicating that so that people don't um, kind of skip through it or think, gosh, you know, if the participant information sheet is that long, then what about the study? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what my participants were telling me. They were kind of weighing the amount of paper and judging how long <laughs> is this going to take me to read? So that's a really important message. Maybe we need to be a little bit more creative mm. about how we communicate information. And we've got loads of options now with the way people use technology. Of course, yeah. We need, we're trying to, I'm trying to be creative and not make my um, students listen to endless lectures from me by recording this interview so they can hear from you. So um, one thing that um, I just wanted to ask you is, um, relating back to this idea of um, inequality then, do you think this approach might help us to kind of reduce that divide and encourage more different types of people to, to take part? And, and, how, and how do you think that might work? Absolutely, because what marketing teaches us is that if we're going to change something, if we're going to sell a product, in our case, if we're going to sell research participation as something that participants want to give their precious time and resources to, then we need to adopt a participant perspective. And in the past, as researchers, we've thought very carefully about 
how are we going to persuade somebody to do our research in the way we want it done? So we think about offering money or we go for the guilt trips about how so many people die in the world. And if we do this research, we might be able to save lives, all that kind of thing. But actually, we should be doing a little bit more to ensure that participation is more of an exchange between two parties. That's what marketeers do, because you pay over your money, they get your cash, you get a product to enjoy. At the moment in research, we pay over the time, but you don't always see the result of the research for you. So by changing how we do the research and how we meet people's needs, we'll make it more of an exchange. And that's quite an ethical way of thinking about recruitment, moving from manipulating people to an exchange. But the problem in an exchange is you've got to understand people. And that exchange might be different for different groups. And what I found with young women with um, lower levels of um, socioeconomic status or feeling less powerful in their communities, actually helping them to develop their identity and their independence and feel empowered and feel like they're part of a community of women are really powerful things that they actually value and want to have. So this taking a participant's perspective, I think is a really important way of reducing those inequalities. A really important reflection um, and I, I like the way you, you sort of put that in, in ethical terms as well and I think that's a, a really good lesson for us all going forward this idea of um, making it a good experience and also the, the absolute necessity of uh, making sure you feed back to participants as well um, so that's excellent Sarah really enjoyed hearing from you so far is there anything okay. else that you can tell us some maybe from your other research um, on um, the topic of, um, of inequalities and recruitment that you'd like to share that's an interesting one I think what I would like your students maybe to think about is that one of the things I've learned in my work is that sometimes we get stuck in our discipline. And as you know, Emma, my background is actually in psychology, even though I don't teach psychology here at Oxford Brooks. And I know in psychology, we've, we spend a lot of time having debates about how to do research and we start to identify ourselves as a qualitative researcher or a cognitive psychologist and all those kind of labels. But that means we can get really stuck in our discipline. And sometimes if we're trying to solve real world problems, we need to look outside of our discipline to learn from others. So it, it struck me recently, I've been to a few conferences on health research where kind of big names in research have been very sniffy about marketing and using marketing data and techniques because it's not proper science it's not health research or it's not psychology or sociology it's coming in from a different perspective and yet marketing's been really important once I clicked that marketing was a good way of seeing recruitment it really changed my perspective and I realized how stuck in a rut I was doing the same old thing and thinking the same old thing was right for recruiting to research and it moved me from, instead of working at how to manipulate people, to use their psychology, their default processing to get them to do what I want them to do, take part in my study, 
I've been challenged to think about how I can change what I do in planning my studies and designing my studies so that research participation works for me because I get my data, but works for my participants because it's providing that experience or those feelings, beliefs about themselves that they value. And also to make what I do fit into their lifestyles really easily. And you mentioned my other research. And um, earlier, I was talking about the uptake of bowel cancer screening in South Asian communities um, research, what we fondly call the poo in the post study, because that's what people have got to do. They've got to smear their poo onto a card and put it into a plastic envelope and send it back. Now, again, to solve this problem, we need to think a little bit outside of health research and even outside of psychology. So the previous research was suggesting that the reason why South Asian adults aged 60 and over, because those are the people who are asked to do the test, um, they are returning home bowel cancer screening at approximately half the rate of the rest of the UK population. So that's about 30% of the tests going out to these communities are actually coming back for testing. And the research was suggesting that this was down to poor communication in English, so people didn't know why they were being asked, and cultural sensitivity around talking about poo and handling poo. But again, through talking to people, so maybe that's another message for your students, sometimes we have to just ask people what's going to work. But I've learned that, yeah, these are important barriers, communication and, and, and not wanting to deal with poo, they are important barriers. But there are other things, such as practical living arrangements. So a lot of the um, adults I've been talking to, they are grandparents, and they are doing an awful lot of caring for grandchildren, but also other dependents, such as elderly parents. And they're doing a lot of things like driving um, their children to and from places, and all living together in, in large homes, but very busy homes. And so they find it really hard to get that break in their routine to do the test, and also privacy to do the test. And then, on top of that, they talk about the challenge of getting all the kit together that you need to catch your poo and take the sample and get it on the card and then there's the envelope. And some of them, because they're getting elderly, were beginning to have problems with their memory. And frankly, working out how to physically do everything in the instructions when they're balanced on a toilet, they've got grandchildren crying outside the door for attention. And they're not always physically agile anymore to be able to twist and turn, to be able to do everything they need in the toilet. So many of these problems we can tackle by looking to engineering. So instead of thinking about how we can change people's behavior, can we make it easier for them to do the intervention by making the test cleaner, making it quicker, making it so that you don't need quite so much stuff, providing everything that people need in a cheap format that we can pop in the post and send out to people. So I think one of the things that I've been learning and challenged about in my research is that we often want to solve real world problems with our research, but 
to do so, we often get stuck in our science, our discipline, because it's the best. But if we look at other disciplines and other ways of solving these problems, they may have something to offer us. I think that's a really lovely reflection, Sarah. Thank you very much. I mean, obviously, obviously, psychology is the best. <laughs> but well, I am a psychologist <laughs> some of the time. <laughs> but um, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, I rarely work in, I don't think I, I think I might have one ongoing project where the team is just psychologists but all yeah. of the other teams I'm involved in are, are multidisciplinary um, teams and so um, yeah. although my students are very much um, focusing on sort of psychology here when they're out in the real world applying all these ideas hopefully they will be working with lots of different groups of people so yeah, yeah. I think that's a lovely reflection to end on and I've definitely learned a lot from listening to you so thank you very much Sarah. You're welcome thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to Sarah's interview as much as I did. I think it's really interesting how she's applied the sort of principles of marketing to participant recruitment, because when you think about it, we are trying to do a kind of job of encouraging people to do something that perhaps they didn't really want to do in the first place. But of course, as Sarah noted, we have to do these things with lots of ethical considerations in mind, which means that we don't quite have the power uh, that marketing people have. But we have a great responsibility to ensure that we do report back our findings to participants, as Sarah really highlighted at the end of the interview. And sometimes perhaps we forget that. We're very keen to say, I've done this amazing intervention and it's just going to be the best thing ever. And we forget that people have given us very generously their time, their energy, their data. And perhaps they're people who you know really want to benefit themselves from the intervention. So I think that's a good message for all research, not just um, developing interventions so that was a really nice interview with lots of um, interesting content around lots of different topic areas and that's the end of episode two this episode again links with topics around week four in the psychological interventions module around inequality and recruitment issues and thinking about how to make sure we engage with the target population for whom our intervention is designed 